pray. Lord, we call this in our culture Easter. We know it's Resurrection Day. So we praise you. We give you thanks for your word. If it were not for the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of God, we wouldn't know you. We wouldn't know the joy of walking with you and living for you. And so praise you, Lord, that you have not only created us, you have spoken to us. And you have given us truth, even from the days of Adam, who was perfect, yet he needed your truth. And we need your truth to understand life, to understand this world, to understand you and the gospel that you have given us through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the resurrection. Exalt Christ in us now, Lord, and please protect us from error. Fill us with your spirit. And may this not be just knowledge for the sake of intellectual or academic growth. May it be theology that leads us to doxology, leads us to worship Christ and to live for him in a way that is pleasing to your Father. And so we give you praise for this hour, and we ask you to bless it in ways that only you can. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, you know why we're here. We have come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically speaking, that normally means that I choose a, a singular passage of Scripture and work through it word by word, and uh, we spend a whole hour trying to do that, one verse or 10 verses or 20 verses or usually more like one or two. <laughs> this morning, however, I, I want it to be a little different. I think the Lord would be most pleased this morning if we would just devote a significant portion of our time together to reading the text of Scripture. The Apostle Paul told Peter, give yourself to reading the Scriptures and I infer from that that he meant to the church. Understand, in that day, people didn't have copies of the Bible, nor did they have any kind of recording mechanism. Someone had to read it. But you know, it still stands true. It's good for us to hear the word of God. Faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing the word of God. And so I've compiled a kind of harmony of the resurrection story. That is, harmony meaning... From Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get pieces of the story. I just piece them together chronologically. And what you're going to hear, at least here in the beginning, for 15 minutes or so, is that story. <coughs> if I don't make it any further than that, if I were to suddenly, God forbid, drop dead on the stage, um, if I make it to the end of this, you will have heard from God. And that would be enough. And so I ask on, on this first portion of the sermon, don't worry about taking notes. Just listen. And if you need something to listen for, listen for royalty. Listen for words and phrases that speak to what we just sang. Rejoice, the Lord is what? King. Look for his kingship, his authority. And you will see it. And so all the words that I'm about to read are God's words. They are scripture. I've simply taken them together and put them in order. Listen now to the biblical narrative of the resurrection. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the grave 
And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and the angel, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone that, and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They left the tomb quickly with fear and with great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And so Mary Magdalene ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, the other disciple, that's John, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter and the other disciples went forth and they were going to the tomb the two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stopping and stooping in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciples who had first come to the tomb, he also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he is. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She said to him in the Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But to tell my brethren, Say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing this to the disciples. She said, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priests what had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole, stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things which had taken place. And while they were walking and discussing these things, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? <laughs> and they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and in all the people. 
and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us were amazed when they went to the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had also said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. When they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. It's getting evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scripture to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found together the 11 with those who were with them, saying, the Lord is really risen and has, assigned, has appeared to, to Simon. And they began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you have forgiven the sins of any, their sins will have been, will have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them that night when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were once again inside. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believe? Blessed are those who did not see me and yet believe. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name.
Then the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, for John the Baptist baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again just the same way as you have watched him go. Oh, Father, this is history. This is the story of Christ, not just the story history. The account of the resurrection of your son leaves us breathless. It was for our sakes that you crushed your son. It was for your glory in our salvation that you raised him from the dead. And it is because of the resurrection that the church meets on Sunday. It is because of the resurrection that believers have great hope in the most dire of personal circumstances. And it is because of the resurrection that sinners can be healed of their sin. Oh, Holy Spirit, come now and make dead hearts live. Empower your word to accomplish this, this very day. For we ask in the name of the one who is crucified and risen, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, our only Savior. Amen and amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all human history. It is the most significant event that has ever taken place or ever will take place place in human history. And it should be important to you. Even you who claim that you're irreligious, and that's Perhaps not just people in this room, there are 90 other people down the hall. And I have to assume that there are some here who don't know Christ. You hear us speak to him, of him, and to him. But you watch our lives and you see that there's something different. He is why we are different. He is why we think like we think and we live like we do. Did you hear the royal language in this story? Did you hear the word Christ, which means anointed? If you look into the history of the kings in the Old Testament, they were, they frequently referred to themselves as the anointed, the anointed one. The king was the anointed. Christ is simply the transliteration or the translation from the Hebrew of anointed, also called Mashiach, the Messiah. As if bowing before the king, you remember Thomas fell before him and said, my Lord, which may very well be a reference to the Old Testament word Lord, which often is the name Adonai, the sovereign one. 
He said, my Lord and my God. And most explicitly at the end of that story of the resurrection, the disciples said, Lord, is it now that you are restoring the kingdom? They knew he was king. They knew he was the Christ. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you can't help but finding the theme of Jesus' royalty, his kingship all over. For example, remember the genealogy that you always skip when you get to Matthew, right? First chapter, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so and then you fall asleep, right? Uh, that genealogy has a purpose. It is there to demonstrate that Jesus comes from the line of the kings. He's a son of David. And that's another thing that you find in the Gospels. Every time he is referred to as the son of David, they are postulating that perhaps he's the king. He's the promised one. And when he was born, you remember the wise men came not to Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. They figured, they figured he was to be born there. Who was the king of the Jews? They came and they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And the reason the Romans gave for executing Jesus was this, that he claimed to be a king. And that's why, by the way, it's not on the table anymore, but during the Good Friday service, we had that crown of thorns. It's why they made him the crown of thorns. They, they were mocking him, and they wanted to give him a, 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 a crown to help him pretend to be king, and they put around him a, a purple robe as if he were royalty while they were mocking and beating him. Even Pilate, when Jesus was crucified to the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, Pilate nailed the placard indicating why he was there, and it simply said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. He meant to insult the Jews. He had no idea he was telling the truth about Jesus. Moreover, the gospel itself, throughout these four gospels, is frequently called the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom. What do we learn? He's king. He's king. And you remember in our recent study of Philippians chapter 2, we learned that Jesus' life can be divided into two categories, his humiliation and his exaltation. In his humiliation, Jesus steps down from his eternal throne in heaven and became a human baby. Mind-boggling. Became a human baby. It's why we call it incarnation, which is a Latin phrase, term which means in flesh, in the flesh, God in flesh. We sing about it every Christmas. In humiliation, he stepped down from his eternal throne in heaven. He became a real baby boy. He grew to be a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. In his exaltation, however, Jesus rises from the dead, ascends back to heaven, returns to his seat on God's glorious royal throne, intercedes for sinners, and prepares to return, this time in judgment. This is the exaltation of Christ. Normally, when it comes around to this time of year, we say that this is the time of resurrection, and it certainly is. And we should call it Resurrection Day and not Easter, I mean, it's not a sin to call it Easter, everybody calls it Easter, but we as believers whose very eternity hangs on the resurrection of the dead, we ought to call it Resurrection Day. Normally, when we speak about it, we, we focus on the resurrection, and that, of course, is appropriate. But I want to suggest to you that it might be more appropriate to call it a time of celebrating Jesus' exaltation, because the resurrection is not the only thing that happened here. Let's take a few minutes to consider the different parts of Jesus' exaltation. He is lifting up. Now God raised him, raised him not just from the dead, but raised him to the very throne of God. Let's talk about resurrection first, because that's primarily why we have come this morning to hear about resurrection. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. You're in the book of Acts, I assume, uh, or maybe I'm the only one in the book of Acts, because <laughs> I read out of it a little while ago. But uh, let's turn to Romans, and um, Romans chapter 1. This is the first verses of Romans, if I can find it. Here's what we read. Paul, a servant of Christ. It's Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God 
which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. Okay, you hear king here? This is his point. Descended from David according to the flesh and was declared... Now, here's the operable phrase. This is, this is the most important thing. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Consider this. In his humiliation, Jesus became a real man and was despised and rejected of men, right? Just as Isaiah prophesied it would be. He was declared to be a criminal. He was declared to be an enemy of the state and the enemy, uh, enemy not only of Israel but of Rome. He was rejected. He was sentenced to death and he died. At his resurrection, however, Jesus' true identity was revealed. Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. What does the resurrection say about Jesus? It says that he is the Son of God, and it says it in power through the resurrection. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would have insufficient proof that he is who he claimed to be and actually accomplished what he set out to do. In fact, it may be argued that if he hadn't raised from the dead, he didn't accomplish what he set out to do. He set out to raise the dead. He set out to rescue you from death, right? That's what eternal life is all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have what? Eternal. You know that verse, right? <laughs> he might have eternal life. And that means after you die, you're no longer dead. You're alive. If Jesus didn't come back to life, it would have demonstrated all of that's a hoax. And that's Paul's argument in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin, and there is no hope. But Christ has risen from the dead. If he's not risen from the dead, what do we have? He would have gone to the grave the way every religious leader before him has ever gone. By the way, Billy Graham died a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. He's still in the grave, I assure you. He's still in the grave. And Peter made this same point in the book of Acts. We know David said that his flesh would not decay. And Peter said he could not have been speaking of himself because we know where his grave is. We know that David was prophesying about his son, a son of David. David's son, who is David's Lord, who would not see decay but would rise again. This Jesus, that was part of Peter's sermon. But if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we have no hope. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if that's true, then we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, in the resurrection, Jesus demonstrates that he was not merely a powerful religious personality, but that he is king. He's king. He rules over death, he rules over sin, he, he rules over all the peoples, and he rules over all creation. Therefore, Paul argues in Romans 8, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now think about that. Who can bring a charge against you is what he means. Who can bring a charge against you? Who can stand before God and successfully argue that you are unworthy of eternal life? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was, what? Raised. Do you understand the meaning here? Do you understand what Paul is saying? 
the basis of your hope of eternal life, the basis upon which you believe that you will stand before God one day and he will not pronounce you guilty, though you are, right? How many of you are guilty? Well, not all of us. That's amazing. Call the news. <laughs> um, all of us are sinners. We're all guilty. If Jesus is not raised, then on that day we will get what we deserve. We will get what we earned. I mean, do you believe that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account by grace through faith? Are you convinced that you are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, only the Son of God could accomplish these things. Only the Son of God. Only the King. Because only he has the authority to offer them. And the resurrection proves it. And there's so much more. So much more. If you're a skeptic, just get on Amazon and look up any number of books where men of law and detectives, I was reading about a detective this week who set out to disprove the resurrection, one of the best detectives in America, and at the end he became a Christian. It's amazing. Josh McDowell, the same thing, law student, set out to demolish Christianity by proving the resurrection wasn't true. And he became a believer again and again and again. If you look at the evidence, it's all there. If you look at the evidence based on what evidence really is and is not, you have to conclude it was real. All the evidence is there. But no amount of evidence will convince you. You have to humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is Jesus' resurrection, but it's not the only thing that we hang our hope on. It is the main thing, yes, but there's so much more. We talk uh, on, at this season, we should talk more about the ascension. The ascension of Jesus Christ is so often overlooked and seldom talked about. But it is one of the most essentially glorious parts of the gospel record. In all fairness, I, re I realize that um, it's, it's a very small portion of the gospel record. Very little is said about his ascension. It just happens. The text merely says, on the last day, he spoke with his disciples and while he was speaking with them, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And then the angel said, why, why are you standing there gawking into heaven? Um, he's going to be gone for a while, but he's going to come back just as you have seen him with your physical eyes go. Now, it's important to note here that he didn't suddenly disappear. He didn't evaporate. He didn't dissolve into nothingness, some cosmic life force or energy, or become one with something as the Eastern mystics imagine. No, he left them in such a way that would indicate that he was not merely leaving, he was going to a place. He was going somewhere. And where was he going? Well, he was going to what the scriptures call heaven and what Jesus himself called my father's house. You remember John 14, one through three, these are the words of Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms, or King James says, many mansions. I like mansions myself, better than rooms, but we'll take rooms. Hope it's a big room. Um, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Listen to this. I go, why? Lord, why are you going? Why are you going? Why are you leaving us? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to be with me. I want you to be in the presence of the Father. And so I go. And so you see, unlike the resurrection that tells us what Jesus did for us, the ascension tells us what Jesus is continually doing for us. He's preparing a place for us. What kind of place? Well, it's a place where there's no more crying or tears, no more grief, no more sorrow, no more sin. It's a place where there's no disease. Both my brother, who's here today, and my son have juvenile type 1 diabetes. It's horrible. It's horrible. In the Father's house, there is no such thing as insulin or needles or blood meters. There's no such thing as, as chemotherapy or pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, but uh, it slipped out. 
It's a place where every wrong will have been made right. You've been mistreated? Don't worry. You'll be made right. It'll be a place of reunion with the saints gone before. You miss people who have left? I do. Most of all, it will be a place where we will not only see Jesus, but we will fellowship with him forever. Think about it. It only took Jesus six days to create the heavens and the earth, the stars, everything in the heavens, the sea and all the creatures, people, plants, animals, everything. But he's been gone 2,000 years working on our house. Listen, if it took six days for all creation, and so far 2,000 years, I mean, that place, that place is amazing. As Keith Green said, I mean, we're living in a garbage can compared to what he is creating, he's making for us. The author of Hebrews writes about this when he, um, he talks about Jesus coming on his throne. And this gets us to the, to the next thing. We have resurrection, we have ascension, but then we have something called, and this may be a new term for some of you, the session. The session. Now that's not a term from the Bible, but let me tell you what it means. Um, this is a term that's used for Christ being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word session used to mean, in Old English, it used to mean the act of sitting down. It was once used to refer to rulers or magistrates, magistrates who exercised authority from their official chair. And it's still used in the Presbyterian church in reference to the body of elders. Collectively, they are called the session. That is, the ones who sit in leadership over the church. If you have ever been to a university, there will be someone who is your department, said, department head, and they will call him the chair. It is the session, so to speak. He sits in the place of authority. In the case of Jesus, he ascended to heaven to receive honor and glory by resuming his rightful place upon the throne once again. He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely a priest or savior. He is king of kings, and he is lord of lords, and he is sitting upon his father's throne. And the author of Hebrews, as I said, writes about this when he says in Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, that's crucifixion, humiliation, after making purifications for sin, what's the next three words? He sat down. He sat down, where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. It means there's not just one seat, as it were, on that throne. He sits next to his father. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered... For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is, this is, the whole context here is the priests. The priests never sat down. They're always busy, always working, always sacrificing, always preparing the next sacrifice, always peeling back the curtain, always, you know, incense. All, and they were busy, busy, busy. They had to rotate. There was so much work to be done every single day. But Jesus, once he made purification of sins by one sacrifice, once for all, no need for mass anymore. No need for the sacrifices. Once for all time. When he was finished with that, he sat down. He sat down. The very last words Jesus said on the cross, the very last word he said on the cross was, to tell us thy, in Aramaic, which means it is what? Finished. And because it was finished, he, our great high priest, sat down. Sat down where? On the throne. So he's not just king. He's priest. He's not just priest. He's king. He's not just priest and king. He's Messiah. He's Lord. He's Savior. And so Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and what? 
sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, the point here is that Jesus has been restored to his position of ultimate exaltation. He's not living in humiliation anymore. He is the king seated upon his throne, and the throne is the seat of his authority. That's what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 when he walked into the temple. And there was Adonai, the second person of the Trinity, before he was named Jesus in his incarnation. And where was he sitting? On a throne, high and lifted up. And Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah 9, 6 through 8, we always hear it around Christmas. I think it's part of the Messiah as well. The uh, um, Handel's Concerto or whatever that thing is called. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 through 8. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son will be given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of Adonai, the Sovereign One, the Captain of an army of angels, which what Lord of hosts means. He will accomplish this. Now, as with many statements in Scripture, the fulfillment is already and not yet. The not yet part is the promise that the Messiah King will literally rule on earth over his people. The already part is that even now he rules by his providence. And he rules by his word and his spirit in your lives if you belong to him. We know he rules by providence because we love passages like Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. But we also know that one day it won't just be ruling in our hearts. It won't just be ruling by providence. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one. Christ's sovereign authority over the world should be precious to us because by it we understand that our, our ultimate hope is not in the UN and the political leaders of this world who are somehow going to reconcile the races and unify the nations, never going to happen. No, our hope is in the eternal reality that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know that God is moving history forward and every act of history forward to ultimately be summed up in Jesus Christ who created it all. And not only that, but it is our great hope that as we share the gospel with people, the Holy Spirit will actually be drawing people to himself. By what authority? By the authority of the king. By the authority of the king. And so Jesus says to his disciples, just before he leaves, all authority is given to me. This is after his resurrection. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What hope do we have that anybody's going to accept the foolishness of a crucified Savior? No worries. All authority has been given to me. They will come. They will come. The king has sent his warrant out for people. And he sends us to deliver the warrant. And people will look at us and say, what, are you, what exactly are you doing? We have come to arrest you in the name of Christ. <laughs> Where are your weapons? Where are your handcuffs? No, no, you don't understand. The king said, when we come and deliver the warrant, you will come of your own free will. And isn't that the case with us? We heard the gospel 10,000 times, and one day, one day, it's as if the warrant showed up. One day. Got it. It just all made sense. 
And the first breath we breathe, the first word of our heart is, God, I believe, I believe, I believe. Save me, rescue me. The only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Will you receive me? Will you take me? I mean, he's the king. You don't accept him. He accepts you. In the days of the Romans, when they ruled the world, the people used to declare out loud, very loudly, especially at the Colosseum, Curios Caesar, Curios Caesar. You know what it means? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. One day, all the nations will declare, Curios Christus, Curios Christus, Jesus is Lord. As glorious as all of that will be, there is something more intimate and personal about his session to the throne of his father, namely his constant intercession for us. Remember in the Old Testament when God designed the tabernacle and told Moses, listen, it's got to be this many poles, this many ropes, this many tent pegs. I want this curtain to be purple. I want this one to have embroidered angels on it. I want there be, to be a veil separating you know, the back room from the front room from the courtyard. And in the back room, in the Holy of Holies, I want you to put an ark, an ark of the covenant. You saw Indiana Jones. It kind of looks like that. It's gold. It's got poles. Just something they, they tried to did it right, do it right in the movie. Pretty good. Solid gold, and it had a lid. And the lid was made of pure gold. What they didn't say in the movie is the lid had a name. You know what it was called? The mercy seat. You know why? Because it represented the throne of God. And it was where Israel would come through the priest to have their sins atoned for and receive mercy and help in their time of need. With that in mind, consider the words of the author of Hebrews again, speaking of Christ and his ministry of royal priest in the heavenly temple when he writes, Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, he is our great high priest. Let us therefore hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You got need right now? Where do you run? He realized the priest was only allowed into that back room where the ark was, the Holy of Holies, one time, and only the high priest, and only with blood, the sacrifice. But because of Jesus' death, you know what happened the day Jesus died? That veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Access was given to the very place of God and now in Jesus Christ, our high priest, we don't have to be afraid to draw near. God says through the author of Hebrews, hold fast, draw near, hold fast, draw near, hold fast, draw near. Don't give up your faith in the time of trial. Come to me. I'm here. I'm still sitting on the mercy seat. I'm sitting on my throne. It's a throne of not judgment for his people, it is the throne of what? Grace. You need mercy? You need help in your time of need? Come to him. How do we know that Jesus will have what we need when we come and ask? Well, because we know that right now, as always, Jesus is interceding for us before the Father. Does the enemy of your soul accuse you before, before the Father because of your sin? Yep, he does. But Jesus is also there. And here's how I kind of imagine it. Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling over every molecule in the universe. And the devil comes and says, you see that guy preaching down there? He's a sinner. 
He doesn't deserve eternal life. And Jesus says, look at the hand. Look at the scar. Enough said. It's paid for. To tell us thy. Look at my feet. Did you forget what I did for that pastor? For that young girl, that teenage boy, that mother of five, that grandfather. Does your own conscience accuse you? Jesus says, look at the hand, look at the feet. It's paid for. Know this, beloved, Jesus Christ always lives in the presence of the Father to intercede on your behalf. He is your defense attorney. You don't have to be your own defense attorney. It doesn't work. He's your defense attorney reminding the judge of all things that, that the price for your sin has already been paid, and it was paid by his own blood. Therefore, need mercy, need grace, need help? Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, my door is always open. For you. Isn't that a precious promise? Why? Because you have someone on the inside of the divine judicial system. You have a divine advocate. You have the very Son of God Himself interceding on your behalf. He is King. He's King. He is Lord. He is also the priest, and He is also the sacrifice. It just goes on, doesn't it? Beloved, this is why we have peace with God. This is why we are not enemies of God anymore. Not only because of the death, not only because of the resurrection, not only because of the ascension, but because also of the session and the intercession of Jesus Christ. It's not just what he's done. It is also what he is doing for you. Day after day after day. It is, in the words of the author of Hebrews, he is... Interceding, interceding is, is kind of a word for prayer. He's, he's speaking to the Father. We call that prayer, right? You remember when Jesus in the book of Mark, they just got, he just got done feeding, I forget, 4,000, 5,000. They wanted to make him king. The disciples wanted him to be king. What did Jesus do? Took the disciples, get in the boat, go. I'll take care of the people. He was, I think he was afraid that you know, his disciples were going to take their side. Get in the boat, go. He sends them out into what we could call the perfect storm. And where does he go? He goes up the mountain. And what's he doing? He's praying. What do you think he's praying for? The men he just pushed out into the storm. It's amazing. And then you know what he does? This great king of all kings. He comes down the mountain while they think they're going to drown. And he starts walking out on the water. And for him, it was no big deal. He, wouldn't, he didn't have a lick of fear. In fact, the text itself says he acted as if, as if he would pass them by, like he didn't see them out there on the water while he was just walking. And they started calling to him. And he went to them, and as soon as he stepped into the boat, the sea went calm, and the wind disappeared. This is the king. This is the king. Therefore, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. My friends, this is our hope. There, and there is no place, perhaps in Scripture, where the exaltation of Jesus Christ is displayed more clearly and with power than in Revelation 5, 6 through 14. I'm going to take the time to read this. It's not very long. And you can turn there if you want. But it's Revelation, what did I say? Revelation 5, 6 through 14. And here's what we read. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of, my, out of, uh, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb until each one holding a lamp of of gold and bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and forever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen, amen, amen. And the elders fell down on their faces and worshiped. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Perhaps you're here today because going to church is just what you do two times a year, Christmas and Easter. Maybe you're here because a friend brought you or a family member. Perhaps you came for the food. That's a good reason. Maybe you came for friendship. Well, perhaps you have yet to fall down before the king in your heart. Just give it all up. Surrender, worship, broken worship, humble worship, dependent worship, the kind of worship that surrenders utterly and completely to the lordship of Jesus, the kind of worship that says, again, I have nothing to offer you but my sin, will you accept me? Wouldn't today be the perfect day to cry out to the king, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? Wouldn't today be the perfect day to say, what must I do to be saved? And to hear God through his word say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, all of your belief, not just some of it, all of your belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing special. I've got no gifts. I've really got nothing of value apart from you. Will you receive me? on the merits of Christ's blood and righteousness, the blood of the Lamb and the authority of the King. This was the whole point of the Gospels. We know that because when John got to the end of his Gospel, here's what he wrote. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Easter reminds us that the king who humbled himself unto death has risen and returned to his exalted throne from which he rules over all for the good of his people and for his own and his father's eternal glory. And we say, hallelujah, amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's so good to know that the ideas of the world about how life should be lived do not rule us. And the the silly foolishness of what happens after death can do nothing to harm us. Sooner or later, every man, time and truth go hand in hand. Sooner or later, every man smacks into the truth. I pray that for some today is that day. And that they won't smack into the most glorious eternal truth in the world at the judgment of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we believe every word of this book is true. We hang our lives on it. We eat the fruit of it, and it is sweet. You've made our families what they are because of this truth. You made our marriages better than they could have ever been because of this truth, but that's ultimately not what you're after. You are after the glory of Jesus Christ by our lives. Lord, how can you use us for that? And yet you do for your glory and for your own eternal joy and for ours. And so we praise you. Amen.